When it says that all scripture is inspired by God, there is just a waterfall of wonderful things about the word of God that we learn from that. Just the fact that it's inspired means it's, it's coming from, from the very heart of God and then given to us. And being that it's inspired by him, it's part of who he is and his character and his truthfulness. And as it does echo then Jesus' prayer in John 17, 17, or 17, 17, that is that God's word is truth and he sanctifies us by the truth. Or in Psalm 119, 160, that the sum, the totality of his word is truth. And um, as we see that God's word is true, then as a church, we establish who we are. And part of our values as a word-centered church comes from the fact that when we read verses like 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, what else could we do? As we just sang, you know, where else can we go? Who else can we turn to? What else could we do as a church than to build our ministry, our lives upon the unchanging truths of God's word? And in reality, that just means that when we seek to accomplish our mission, when we seek to uh, carry out a vision for this church and all that God could have us to be as we make disciples for the glory of God, making disciples of Jesus, that it really is our guide. That um, how we want to take the path to accomplishing God's will, not just in our individual lives, but as a church, comes by way of being guided by the word of God because of the fullness of it, that it's inerrant. There is, there is nothing in it that needs corrected. There is, unlike a lot of my term papers, no red ink on the exam when I get it back. It's a completely perfect test score in all ways. God's word is inerrant. We saw last week also that God's word is sufficient, that there is no lack when it comes to meeting the needs of God's people, that God has designed me and he knows what I need and he has given me the perfect handwritten prescription by way of the word of God, that there is no absence of, of truth in the word of God that would leave me stuck and going, man, I just wish... The Bible could, could help me in this issue. It's sufficient. And then we talked about the Bible being clear. That if it was sufficient and is, and it was an errant, but if, if for some reason I needed like the special glasses to read it, you know, or the, the secret handshake or something along those lines, then what good would it do me if I couldn't understand it? But the truth of the matter is God has made his word clear. It's knowable and, and we imbibe that to such a degree that we would teach it to the littlest hearts and minds over in, in children's ministry. That it can be clear to my five-year-old and that they can come home and understand something as much as a 50-year-old in here could go and say, wow, not that I've never thought of that before. That's not the point. The point is I've never seen that before. It's there. But I didn't have eyes to see it until it was explained to me. So it's a clear word. And then finally, and as important as the rest, it's an authoritative word. That the God's word speaks in divine decrees, not uh, helpful suggestions. You know, maybe God feels like making a, a mild recommendation to us. Not at all. It's divine fiat. It's this is what God has said. Thus saith the Lord is all throughout the scriptures which speaks to its authority. And so you put all those together and we have been given to, to accomplish the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. The most valuable tool, resource, weapon in our arsenal is the word of God. It was interesting. I came across this 
bit of information um, in the uh, passing of the queen over the last year that when a new ruler ascends the throne in the UK, the archbishop of the church will hand a copy of the Bible to this newly crowned monarch and say these words. I'm giving you this to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Imagine that. Not just that they would be given that, but they would actually believe what they were just told. That this is the most valuable thing the world affords to a new king. And you've been given it. Somebody's given you a copy of this. You may not have an entire country to preside over. But you have your own soul. And the people that God has put around you. Absolutely valuable because it is absolutely true. And as we'll see today in the second half of 16 and 17, absolutely useful. So follow along with me as, as I read verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As the rain comes down from heaven and doesn't return without watering the earth. So God's word goes forth from his mouth and does not return void. Last week I opened by giving an illustration trying to put the picture of a truthful and useful word together to show how it's meant to be fruitful in our lives. But even in that good intention we may make an overcorrection based on our background, our approach to the word of God. I used an illustration to say we're, we're driving the vehicle of our lives down this narrow road and on that road, you know, we, wanna, we want to drive our lives by the truthfulness and usefulness of the word of God and yet on each side of that narrow road is, is a ditch. There's a ditch on each side and Though we try to keep the car in the middle of the road, if we are just driving with the one hand, we'll call this the truthfulness of the word. Maybe we tend to swerve into a ditch just because we want to be so truthful. And in the neglect of seeing the word as useful, we can become hypocrites. You might remember me saying that last week. That the truthfulness of the word of God, apart from seeing its usefulness, can make you a hypocrite as a Christian, as in you are all about the inerrancy and clarity and sufficiency and authority, but you lack the practice of it. And on the other hand, you may grab the wheel with your right hand, and you're all about the usefulness of the word, and so you swerve into the ditch of heresy because you forget this truthful word and all the wonderful things that sit over you in authority, and you just want to live your life. And when I shared that, I guess what crossed my mind in the aftermath is, I wonder if, um, because I don't have book, chapter, verse to show you that analogy, I just pulled it out of seeing in these verses, truthful and useful, and how when we try to think about the way in which that happens in our lives, what's it like? It's a picture. But I just wondered, you know, does, would some here question that? 
and, and maybe it's just what I was brought up in, I don't think a lot of people would um, have been rebuffed or argue against the whole idea of hypocrisy because we are surrounded by people like us who have a lot of truth and have a hard time living it out. And so the common accusation, whether I might feel it about my own life or somebody makes against my life or against the life of the church, the church is a bunch of hypocrites. You know, they might, not, they might say they believe, you know, they, they say they believe it, but they don't live it. And so I, I was thinking about that saying, I, I doubt many of you would have objected on those grounds. But then on the other side, um, I could see some people in here saying like, really, Adam, there's a professing Christian out there who's just so wanting to be useful with the word of God and at the same time could care less about the truthfulness of it. Is that really out there? Well, I came across a, a quote this week that I'll just present to you and let you decide. Read this as I was reading uh, in preparation. This uh, writer who, um, well known in the evangelical world, could find his books on the shelves in the Barnes and Noble Christian Inspiration section. Um, bestseller, New York Times, and uh, 15 years ago was heralded as the next Billy Graham, which to people in our parts of the world, North Carolina, might say, whoa, who is this person? And he wrote this on the inside of uh, his book in the foreword of it. He wrote, I've been reading and studying and exploring and rereading and rethinking and giving sermons from the Bible for 25 years, and I find it more compelling and mysterious, and interesting, and dangerous, and convicting, and helpful, and strange, and personal, and inspiring, and divine, and enjoyable than ever. It's good, right? Well, some of you that have been around me are not agreeing, because you know it's just a setup. If you say, man, that's a wonderful quote. I mean, isn't the Bible interesting, and convicting, and helpful, and inspiring, and divine? Well, if you were agreeing with that, you're agreeing with known heretic Rob Bell. That was the foreword to his book. Not written 15 years ago. In 2017, in a book called What is the Bible? That he could say that in his study of the Bible for 25 years, all the things we would say about it. And yet not believe its truthfulness. Because he doesn't believe in the inspiration and authority of it. And when that card is pulled out, the whole deck of cards falls. And so went his belief in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That everybody's going to make it to heaven in the end and there is no hell. And yet he can make that statement about the Bible. And yet not really believe it's truthful and authoritative. But it's useful to him. So I just share that with you to show that does exist out there. It exists in the worst form of a false teacher, which then can trickle down to a best-selling book on the New York Times list for other people to buy and say, I like that kind of Bible. Man, mysterious. When Rob Bell preaches, he likes to use his hands like this. And maybe some inspiring thoughts on how to make the world a better place inside of that book. But a heretic. Plain and simple. Someone who wants usefulness without truthfulness. Where does that hit us? Well, we just have to watch in our own lives that we stay out of those ditches. And nobody here, you know, drives it perfectly. We're constantly correcting. The danger is that we overcorrect, right? 
So some of your experiences maybe come from a side of the evangelical faith where you were raised in a very uh, strict, literalist, fundamentalist, you could throw whatever things on there you want, uh, church. And because of that, you just heard about the truth all the time and uh, just had a problem with people not really doing it. And so you overcorrect and end up in the side of just, it's just about being useful. And then on the other side, maybe you were raised in a church that was about go, 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 do, do, do. And then you found yourself later in your life saying, what do I even believe? Do I even know this God? And so you overcorrect to the other side. And that's where we're start trying in, this, in these two weeks to just say, let God's word be our guide out of that. That it is both truthful and useful so that we can be, as we'll see in verse 17, fruitful for his glory. Bearing much fruit to the glory of God, John 15, exalting Christ in our lives. They go together, these two things. And it just takes time to work them out. I was having lunch with a brother this week, and we were just talking this out and how in our lives, and whether it's with people you know, we're discipling or in our own home, we're constantly in, in the attempt to try to, to, to just navigate with wisdom down that road. And uh, he had mentioned by way of example, personal example, he goes, you know, Adam, trying to be good at both those things, holding tight to the truthfulness and usefulness of the word was like he said when he was in high school, he broke his uh, right collarbone. He was a righty and, and, and he wanted to keep um, improving in basketball while his collarbone was recovering. So he just learned to dribble and shoot with his left hand. Well, by the time his right collarbone healed, he found he was good at both. And in the words of the great Charles Shackelford, NC State, you know it, he can shoot with his left or right hand. He's amphibious. <laughs> My favorite thing about sharing that in first service was a dear brother of mine who texted me afterwards and said, hey man, I just want you to know, I think you meant to say ambidextrous. I said, thanks, I'll, I'll correct. I also called the NC State uh, Wildcats and offended all the, the wolf pack in here, so my apologies to them. Not really. But I think that's a, it's a helpful picture, isn't it? That we, we want to be good with both. And that, that it would be said of our church, that when people meet believers from Hickory Bible Church, being word-centered, that, that they would, it, it would be so prevalent and obvious in our lives that we can both understand God's truth and it's, it's seen in our lives and the way we live them. We're fruitful Christians and impact the people around us. So this week, let's turn our attention to its, its usefulness. And there's four ways that verse 16 highlights the usefulness of the word of God. Now that we've established its truthfulness, let's look at the four useful ways God's word is at work in our lives. First on the list, first in priority, first in primacy, the word of God, the inspired scripture is profitable for teaching. It's beneficial for its teaching. It's useful for its teaching. And that, that's talking about the content of the word of God. It's doctrinal content. That's where it's useful for teaching, that it's, it's instructing you, it's teaching you about something that's going to be useful to you, profitable to you. So you might ask the question, what is it that is being taught? What's the most important thing? Where do I start? And the Bible would tell you that the most important thing that you need to be taught from it 
is knowing God. That when you are being taught the word of God, instructed the word of God, you're learning the doctrines of the faith, primary on the list is that you would know God. John 17, 3, when Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in your son whom you've sent. Or Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 17, it's, it's not the prayer for power that we saw in Ephesians 3 two weeks ago. Paul wants wants the believers in Ephesus to know God. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. First on the list in in becoming, uh, growing in, in the word of God, being useful in your life and beneficial to you is that you are being taught about who God is. His character, his words, his ways, his will, all of it comes back to this. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Not just knowing about him, but that you're knowing him. That's that's the starting point. That's certainly not the ending point. Those who just jumped in that Fundamentals of the Faith class in the 9 a.m. hour, the, the, in that book, I don't know if it's on the front cover of it or in the inside flap, but what, the verse quoted in from 2 Peter 3, that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's where it is, friends. God's word is profitable for teaching you about the God of the word. And so for me as a preacher, because this, this applies to your own personal study of it, that you're driven to study the word personally, your quiet time to know God. But in my preaching of the word of God, that, that my goal, that music to my ears on a Sunday is when somebody might come up afterwards and not say, oh, pastor, what a great sermon. But they would say, pastor, what a great God. You showed me Glory of God today in that text. That's the highest commendation a preacher can get. Certainly we want to be helpful, useful, profitable. And certain sermons might do that in, in a variety of ways. But, that the, but, but underneath it all, when you, when you take all that other stuff out of there, that, you're, that who's teaching you the word, who's helping you to grow in the word, is showing you what a great God has, that has saved you. Who he is and what he's like. There's, there's a world of difference between a, a preacher giving you a good sermon versus showing you a great God. So what comes to mind for me is, is the picture versus the reality. In my house, Shannon gave me a picture of one of my favorite places on earth, Yosemite National Park and, and, and the, the entryway in and El Capitan and Half Dome. And it's, it's wonderful sitting there on my wall. But I can't put into words what it's like to be there and to see the majesty of those granite cliffs. And, and that's the difference between a good sermon and a great God. It is, and it's, it's a protectant for me, too, that, that I'm under no impression that my sermon is what's doing it in you. It's, it's the God of the Word who is working the Word of God in you. That's what's changing you. That no preacher would ever believe 
the mirage that it's about him and what he says and does. This is what Paul's trying to get across to the church in Corinth. Right out of the gates with all this church's... And, and if you don't know anything about the church of Corinth, it's just got so many problems, so many sins to address in First and Second Corinthians. But in chapter 2, Paul comes right out of the gates and he wants to establish one thing. If you're, if you're going to encounter God and know who he is and grow in him, you better be able to differentiate the, between what I'm doing and what he's doing in the power of his word. And so in First Corinthians 2, he says, where's the power coming from? Paul, of all people, writes, Brothers, when I came to you, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What was the primacy of what He was there to teach them? The testimony of God. Christ and Him crucified. Back to the point, the first thing that is profitable for us in the teaching of the Word of God is the testimony of God. Particularly that, that we know of his son, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. But Paul is saying, look, if, if, if this was not, your change, church, is not about what the preacher did. Because what did I bring to the table, verse 3? I was weak and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and preaching weren't in persuasive words of wisdom. Here's what I was doing. I was preaching and it was a demonstration of the spirit and his power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. That's the primacy of the teaching of the word of God in the church. That it's never about the, the, the spokesperson, the mouth. But how in our day and age and playing favorites, like back then with Paul, we, we mistakenly attribute it to the person. And Paul would say, I have none of that. Because the only thing I brought to the table was my weakness. But because I brought my weakness, you saw the power of the word of God on display. James Denny, Scottish preacher of the 1800s, wrote, No preacher can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. And yet, what do people like to talk about? Man, who's, who's their favorite preacher? And what's, why is he so good? It's not what we're here to do. We're not here to entertain and impress. And, and if we receive any commendation from our people, we receive it humbly. And we receive it, and we can, you can say, thank you, preacher, for that. But, and we can say, you know, praise God for that. And not that be false humility. It genuinely is, is, is people are impacted by the word that they should have some appreciation for what God is doing through the man. But it's, it's the content of the teaching that is causing the change because the content of the teaching is God, who he is and what he's like. So I guess my, my question for you this morning is maybe you chew on that for a little bit and you think about the usefulness of the word of God in your life is to ask yourself the question, in your devotional life and in our, our life is a gathered assembly when we come here and you're taught by it, if you're just saying, hey, I'll just be honest with you, Adam, I feel like I'm not being um, profited. Uh, you know, maybe you've even heard yourself say something like, I don't see any benefit to going to church today. Or I don't see any benefit to reading my Bible this morning. Well, one of two things could be true. It could be the problem of the deliverer, as in you could have maybe an approach to studying the word in, in your daily life that's not the most helpful and that could use some tweaking. It could be that. 
Um, it could be you're in a bad church. It could be you're in a church that doesn't teach the word of God. That could be it. If it's not a you problem. So you see where I'm going with this. So if you're saying, I just don't see any benefit to going to church today or being in the word today. So if, if you've ruled out the other things, then is it a you problem? It could be two things if it's a you problem. As in you don't see its usefulness and profitability in your life. First, it could be attitudinal. You know, the, the approach you come to the word of God with, whether in your own study or coming on a Sunday to hear the word of God taught, that there could be an attitude in your heart of pride. You know, I've heard it all before. And you, ha- you have to search that out and lay that before God. No matter where you are. I've been in that season of life, and I've been in that season of life in Bible teaching faithful gospel preaching churches where it was a me problem and my problem was my attitude and that's what God had to work on and so so that could be as I'm just trying to run maybe a spiritual diagnostic of your life today the second thing it could maybe it's not attitudinal maybe it is something more on the line of aptitude as in where you are in your faith you know there are some things you know Peter even writes about Paul's writings sometimes are hard to understand, that sometimes we need help in understanding the word of God based on our aptitude of the scriptures. And so we go and find somebody that can disciple us. And that's awesome. That's kind of how the Great Commission is set up, isn't it? Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And sometimes we just need help. Um, and, And that's any point in your spiritual journey. Uh, Just because time is moving on doesn't mean maturity is keeping up. And so maybe you get into that funk and that that low valley and you can humbly and honestly admit it and then find somebody to help help you through it. And uh, that, that could be a reason. It could be attitude. It can be aptitude. But the point of the matter is that we can never, ever point our finger and, and say the problem is God's word. Because... The inspired scripture says it's profitable for teaching. Now, if you thought that first section was offensive, good. Because it's supposed to. Don't take my word. Look at the next description of what the word of God is useful for. Rebuking us. Reproving us. um, Correcting. We'll get to that later. But this is... This word, this next one on the list, your Bible is useful for reproof, is proving my point. If you felt a little bit of of sting in my last section about me leaning into you and asking those questions, that's what the word of God is meant to do. It's meant to reprove us. Another way to just say, show us where we are wrong where we are in error, where we are incorrect. And that could land either on the side of uh, we're wrong in our thinking, as in uh, we're just, um, what we believe about the Bible, about God, about ourselves is wrong. It could be a side of, of just of, of how you think about something. And it's fall, it's, it would be rooted in some form of false teaching that you've been given some view of the Christian life, whether who God is or who you are in the course of your life. And that just needs be corrected. It needs to be rebuked. That's actually something the Bible itself in the hands of another person or just God illuminating it to you shows you you're in the wrong. And you read it and you go, yeah, I'm in the wrong. Now, it isn't just your thinking. It could also be your living, not just false teaching, but false living, that you, your lifestyle is rebuked. And you go, oh, wait, I'm not living this out. 
I'm not arguing saying it's not true. In fact, I know it's there, but I'm not doing it. And that's just the process of the Christian life is the word teaches us and then where we see we're not living up to it, it shows us where we're wrong and, and that's exactly what it's designed to do, to not leave us where we're at. And so, you know, I even think in my own life, practically speaking, you know, I, could have, I was very well aware of Ephesians 5 telling me, Adam, uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. There was teaching there. There was good. I should love her. Christ loved the church. There's gospel-rich truth there. Uh, but what actually rebuked me or reproved me is when you move over to Colossians 3 and it tells husbands love your wives and don't what? Grow bitter against them. And there the rebuke came. Because I was, you know, only thinking about how am I proactively loving my wife and my marriage? But as, you know, as we've talked about marriage communion, you know, talking to each other, uh, a healthy relationship, they hear from you, you hear from them. What I was saying, man, it's... it's you know, what's going on here? I feel it's growing a little bit cold. And I was saying, I was growing bitter against my wife. Now, I wouldn't have noticed, if I just only focused on love your wife, I would have just sat there and been like, I know that's true. I agree 100%. I needed something supplemental to come in and correct me and rebuke me and say, oh, yeah, Adam, you might think, you know, you're serving, you're cleaning the house, you're helping with the kids. But are you growing bitter in some things? Is your twisted, sinful heart uh, holding on to some argument for weeks? I know no men can identify with this, but I'll, I'll continue on. You know, some, some offense was taken over something weeks ago, and you've allowed that little thing to just, just, you know, that little splinter. You didn't remove it, and so it starts to swell up, and it's painful, and rather than pull it out, you just put a Band-Aid over it and don't touch things. No, it needed cut out. And that's the way that the word of God can sting us in the way he designs it. Now, let me just, a word on the rebuking, the reproving. Notice the order of things, that God is meticulous in how he orders. If he put reproving before teaching, what could be the problem with that? You could go around rebuking people for things they have no idea they're doing wrong. And I don't think any of us like that, do we? If you're truly in ignorance about something and somebody in your life comes along and really just leans into you for it and lays it down, you're just, whoa, I didn't even know. I'm coaching my boys' uh, 10U basketball team and my favorite player on the team, hustles, intensity, zeal. Um, after the opposing team will make a bucket, occasionally he'll just grab the ball and go. As in, he doesn't step out of bounds, pass it back in, according to the rules. In zeal for hoops, he just goes. And the ref's standing there, like most often in these 10U games, laughing. The kid doesn't, he's not rebuking him, blowing the whistle, double technical foul, you know. No, he's trying to teach these kids. And once that instruction has come, then the fifth time, it's like, hey, bro, that's a simple rule. You take it out of bounds. On the other hand... Uh, we were down approximately by 50 maybe and the other team was getting a lot of fast breaks and I noticed my team is just not getting back on defense. So at halftime came a, a, a loving rebuke because they weren't hustling. Because from day one of practice, I said, if you just do anything playing, hustle. Just give it your all. Uh, we may not have the ability to make buckets. 
but we can hustle. And so when the other team is just, they're fast break city and we're just getting crushed. So there came, uh, there's instruction for the ignorant on the team that don't know the rules, but there was a halftime rebuke for lack of hustle. And then we only am losing by like 48. So, you know, progress was made. But that's what the word of God is designed to do. Don't take my word, Psalm 39, 11. The psalmist writes of God speaking to his, his chosen nation, Israel. With reproofs, you chasten a man for his iniquity. See that? That's how God works. He's going to reprove one of his own for his iniquity, for his sin. Or Jesus speaking to the church in Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. So we can take our cues from our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we, first of all, need reproved. And once we've seen the value of it in our own lives, being told we're wrong, we're in error, then maybe with that log out of our own eye, we can also help those around us if they need reproved. John Calvin writes about the... the, this verse and this reproof, he, he uses this picture. He says, we need the spur to urge us on because of our sloth and coldness. So stop there and think about in your life. Um, if you feel spiritually cold right now, what might the reason be? I mean, you're sitting under the teaching of the word of God. But are you open to its rebuke in your life? That sting, that spur that actually is there to defrost your heart. Because when things grow cold, they get numb, don't they? I know that's hard to imagine down here, you know, where 28 degrees is like the Arctic Circle to you. But in there's some parts of the country, it could get so cold, you go outside and you're just, the, the extremities are immediately freezing up and you're trying to shovel the snow and you're hitting your hand off something to kind of get the, Well, that's what the cold of sin can do to the believer's heart. So what does it need? It needs some heat. Jeremiah 29, 23 is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. So get closer to the fire of God's word. Feel the heat of his love when he reproves you. Because here's the alternative. You, You continue to let your heart grow cold and grow numb to its reproof. Um, and this is one of the saddest parts of my job, is on the backside of some devastating decision a believer makes and shows up at the church and in my office or Curtis or John's and is recounting where their life went off the tracks and how they ended up in such a busted place. And we're listening and we're, we're trying to help them work it out. We're trying to help them figure it out. And... Ten times out of ten, when we ask this question, we get this response. How, during all that time, how was, how was the word of God in your life? How was your communion with God? How was your prayer life? How was your reading? And ten times out of ten, it was, I wasn't. I'm just saying in, in 15 years of this, not once on the backside of a devastating choice a Christian made, a path to take, that has caused the ruin and wreckage of sin in their life. I have never heard that person say, you know what, I was in the word, I was praying, everything was great with Jesus, I just made it, this just, I've never heard it. It's been a one-to-one correspondence. I was not in the word, 
And I was telling people I was. I was going through the motions. I was faking everyone out. Numbers 32, 23 warns us that be sure your sin will find you out. That when you neglect that, when you let your heart grow cold, that, that decision will follow. That choice will follow. And it doesn't mean God's giving up on you. He's doing what we just read. Those whom he loves, he will reprove and discipline. And then that, that brokenness happens. But praise be to God, he doesn't leave you broken in, in your reproof. Look at the next word. And these, again, they're, they're in some ways telescoping that from teaching, then the reproof can come because you know what you weren't doing and you were shown you were in error. But we are not left in our broken state. The word of God is profitable for correction. And that word means restoration, reformation, rebuilding. That which the word tore down or burned down, the fire of the word of God burnt down. Now in its power, it can build you back up. If you're willing to let it and stay with it and not pull out. That word correction is, is just literally for straightening something up. And it has a, a connotation with a, a bone being broken and a splint being needed to make it straight again. And it brings to mind when I was injured in, in high school and I, I had torn ligaments from, the, from my deltoid ligament on my foot all the way up the side and kind of the, the, there was no bone breakage, but they just had rotated apart in the force of the tear. And in, in my desire to get back on the field and finish that season, I was going to every uh, second, third, fourth opinion I could find because I was determined that if nothing broke, I could just, you know, tape it up pretty good and, and hobble around on it. And finally, my parents and their patience with me took me to uh, the best doctor they could find in Pittsburgh. And he looked at the x-rays and said, look, here is the reality. We could really secure that thing and you could, you could hobble around back there. But um, that might be the short-term solution, but the long-term problem was you'll have arthritis in that foot. That'll cause long-term detrimental damage to your foot that you'll feel at 30. So what are you gonna do? Are you going to let us put the screws in, rotate it back together, cast it up, let it heal, correct it? Which do you want? So at 42, I've had a really mildly successful athletic career playing against teenagers as a youth pastor because that healed up pretty nice. I can still dodgeball with them, Nate. Otherwise, I'd be limping around. And sometimes we short-circuit that in our Christian lives. We, we may get the teaching, we may get the rebuke, but we don't want to let the process fill itself out for the correction, right? We're not patient enough, or we're, we're just too offended by it, and we just want to give up on it, and that rehab time takes a while. And God says, no, the word is useful not just to rebuke and break, but to reset and restore. And that's going to be a part of the process too. It's got to correct you and restore you. Hebrews 12, 12 to 13 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. That's what God wants to do with you. In the power of his useful word, he wants to correct it for good. So you can run on it. So you can be not just back to normal, but even better than before. So put all this stuff together so far. The, the teaching, the reproving, the correcting, and maybe think about it this way. I just kind of summarized it like this. I need taught the truth 
because I don't know it all. I need reproved by the truth because the things I know I still get wrong. And I need corrected by the truth because the things I get wrong need right it. It just goes in that order. I need the teaching because I don't know it all. And I need to rebuke because the things I know I don't do right all the time. And after the rebuke, I need the correction because when I don't do them right all the time, I should want to see the process through so I do them right the next time. That's how he works. And then finally, a word that may seem like it's just a um, kind of repetitious This last way your Bible is useful, it's useful for training you in righteousness. You might read that and say, isn't that kind of a little bit of all the the, uh, above? You know, the greatest multiple choice answer on the list, all the above. Training in righteousness, how is that different? Well, really, it's the fact that it's, it's, it's that in righteousness, as in there's an activity now that changes in you. Where you can, if you want to picture it this way... Um, if there's a spectrum, right? draw a line in your notes and on one side of the spectrum, write content. As in, when you're talking about the teaching of the word of God, that side is the content of it. It's, it's the learning of it. But as you move across the spectrum from reproof to correction, now you've ended up on the other side called conduct. And so you have this spectrum of the content of what you're being taught Now to the conduct of your life. And that's the other side of it that it should get to, which is it's now going to train you in righteousness. This righteousness isn't just in theory, it's in practice. You go from just knowing the content of the word of God as it works powerfully in you, reproving you and correcting you. Now it has trained you in righteousness. There is a transformation happening in your life. This final phrase emphasizes that the word is useful and it's not complete until it actually changes your ethical behavior. That's the fullness of the word at work. Uh, Those of you that signed up for the James study, beware. You're going to hit this right when you get to the end of chapter 1, if you haven't already. Who's the blessed man or woman who sees and hears the word and does what? Forgets it? Does it. James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. So all this last phrase is saying in the completion of this, this cycle or process is that you're now becoming on the outside who God made you to be on the inside. You know, 1 Peter 1.23 tells us we have been born again of the seed of the living and enduring word of God. That's how your salvation started. That seed of the word of God was planted in your hearts. And it started to change you. It it gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. It gave you a new heart. From a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You were born again by the power of the word of God. But that power needs to do its complete work, doesn't it? And that's where these, these phrases come in. That who I am in Christ, I become. Who I am positionally in Christ. He sees me as righteous as he sees his son. I now become in practice. In reality, Spurgeon says about this, if it was God's word that made us, is it a wonder that his word should then perfect us? Right? If it was his living and enduring word that made who you are as a Christian, shouldn't it also continue the process in you? 
And that really just brings us to what we've seen in John 15. We're, we're, we're proving to be disciples of Jesus Christ by the bearing of fruit. And that brings us to our conclusion in verse 17. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That the truthful and useful power of the word of God is so that you can be fruitful. That's the summary of the truthfulness and usefulness in verse 16. What does all that lead to? Is it just an end to itself? Should we just um, be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness? It's just an end in itself. No. It's that we, so that, that we would be adequate. The word for completion. Maturation, Colossians 1.28. You would be complete in Christ. Meaning, without this process, we're incomplete. Our salvation is secure, but we're not all who God made us to be. And doesn't that just kind of burn you up to think, I'm not all that I could be in Christ right now? What's the missing link? It could be your view of the word of God. You see it as truthful and useful? And is it doing a work in you to make you adequate, to make you capable, complete, and as, as if it would be enough for God, if verse 17 would have just ended so that the man of God might be complete. We could put a period there and say amen, couldn't we? How kind of the Lord to, to turn us into who he recreated us to be in Jesus. But God's wanting to do what Ephesians 3, 21, or 20 and 21 says, more than we could ask or imagine. That we just don't, Get to a point of Christian maturity, you know, like uh, some power-up meter or your, your gas tank. You get finally full, and that's when God takes you home. It's like, cool. Hey, I did it in you. You're this complete Christian. Zoop, up to heaven. But see, God wants to do more than you could ask or imagine. What does he want to do? What's the second half of verse 17? He wants to make you complete so that you are equipped for every good work. How kind is the Lord? That he doesn't want it to just terminate on you. Your, your maturity isn't for you to just make a trophy of and put on the shelf and go, nailed it. Look at that, everybody. A mature Christian. It's meant to be useful, not just in transforming you, but working through you for every good work around you. Need I exposit the word every like I did all in Scripture? Every means every. Every good work that you can think of that you want to see happen around you in people's lives because that's where the fun is, isn't it? When God is working in you to work through you and you see people around you affected by it. And he's saying, you can think it, I can do it. Every good work around you, as you mature in Christ, you are capable of carrying out. That's how he works in us and through us. Back to John 15, 8. That's how he's glorified, that we bear that fruit, proving to be disciples of Jesus, making other disciples of Jesus. So you can list whatever it is you want to do right now in your life and say, you know, I want to see God work in my life. I'm struggling with this sin. So you bring that before him and you maybe you need, to, you need more teaching on it and you need to be rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness. But that's wonderful. In and of itself, that, that there could be some sin in your life that you're saying, Lord, can you help me overcome it? And you can look at verse 16 and say, he can. But see, he doesn't want to just leave you there, a better version of you. He wants to take that thing in your life that he's been working on in you and through you and help someone else with it. 
It's, it's not complete till that point. As in, hey, he's now helped me get through this phase in my life so that someone else around me, there's some good work around me that I can be useful for. And you can take that and, and think of every aspect, every, every phase of your life that you feel like, man, I'm not making progress. And no, he can do it in you and then he can do it around you. He'll do more than you could ask or imagine or think with it. You believe him in faith. I guess what, the only thing I would ask is why isn't it happening in you or around you? I mean, I could imagine how excited someone might be. Some, you're reading this saying, yes, I want this, but you know, here's the problem, Adam. When it comes down to like Monday morning, I just don't have the desire to open up the word and read it. So what kind of problem is that? It's your appetite. Like you get excited and fired up and charged up thinking of the potential in your life for the Lord, but you just still kind of, eh, I don't know if I'm hungry to do that today. You know, you wake up tomorrow morning and there's your phone and it's closer to you than your Bible. And even when you try to move your Bible closer to you on the nightstand or you put your Bible over your phone, you still, well, I just need to check it real quick. And then next thing you know, 25 minutes goes by and you don't have time then to read it. And I think that's the issue with that is your appetite, isn't it? your desires or, you know, you have good intentions. You're like, I'm going to get home tonight. I'm going to do the dinner thing. I'm going to help out around the house. And then, then when everything's all is well, I'll, I'll open my word up. And then you get to that point and Netflix is just so much easier. And, you know, they even just queue up the next episode. I don't even have to hit the remote. So what's the issue there? It's appetite. It's desire. It's what we talked about in Psalm 119. That you have an appetite. And so you can probably extrapolate out when I have a problem with my appetite, when I'm, I'm going to spoil a good meal, is it as much about the lack of high view of the good meal that's about to come, or is it just the, I don't have a lot of self-control and I just want some junk food to hold me over? Shannon and I were going out for her birthday a couple weeks ago and reservations at a sushi place in Charlotte that was worth driving to, that kind of place. And I'm like, I'll eat breakfast but I'm skipping lunch for this meal. And I'll tell you what looked good at 3 p.m. I went to my closet in my office. I needed something. And emergency, the emergency, the, the, the vitamin C pack. I don't even need water. I'm that hungry. I'm just going to drink the dust. You know, you find some Swedish fish laying in the you know, bottom of my pen tray. I'll eat one of those. Just ball of red sugar and I got sushi coming it's an appetite thing and I'm filling up on junk food it's going to ruin the meal isn't it and that's, that's just speaking to the desires in our hearts Psalm 119, 103 how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth I would say for most of us in here that love the Lord it's an appetite thing you just got to get the junk food out of the way and the junk food can come in a number of ways. Hebrews 12.1, the things that easily entangle us, not necessarily sinful, just the thing that's, that's more tantalizing and tempting than getting to the good meal. It's, it's the happy meal, not the healthy meal. It's the toy inside, you know? And it's, it's you know, let's just call it what it is. In our day and age, we have far more opportunities for that, the information at our fingertips, distractions, than we've ever had. It's not an overstatement. I mean, you can, you can get distracted down any number of paths more today than you ever could before. 
And so you have to just be that much more adamant to say, Father, I need your help. I want that appetite, that desire that, that I would, like Jeremiah in chapter 15, say, your words were found and I ate them. And they became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That'll drive you to God's word more than anything else. That'll motivate you. When you're hungry, you eat. So can that be said of you? And then it gives you those discriminating tastes over the course of time, doesn't it? The great thing about appetites, just on a human level, is hopefully for most people that, that palate, that, that tasting of good food, uh, it goes in the way of um, healthier and better as we age. The thing that I would recommend for you to eat now is far different than at 20, than at 10. Discriminating tastes. You know, you just, you just get that, oh man, that, that, that um, all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet that I thought was awesome at 19. Nah. Here's this other thing that's so much better. It's quality of food. Is, and that's, that's, the, that's the, the hope I want to give you that the Lord does that in your own spiritual life. You should have better taste buds as you grow as a believer when you're, you're feeding yourself the healthy stuff. If you can understand that on the physical level, it's there on the spiritual level. And if it's not there for you this morning, that you would just say, Lord, help me with that. Help me to just to, to desire it, let alone do it. Now, if you're finding none of that's in you today, if you don't have an appetite for the word at all, and you don't have any conviction this morning, and you're just looking and just, I don't, I don't see any of this, then my, my starting point might be for you are, you. are you a child of God? Are you in Christ? I mean, if there's just nothing hidden today, and the point wouldn't be to just try harder in your Bible study. It, it'd be to actually just look back one verse. Here's your starting point. I mean, if nothing is pinging in your heart this morning, no appetite for the word, no interest in the things of the Lord. Here's what Paul says one verse earlier to Timothy, whom he's known since he was younger. He says, Timothy, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings. You've known the Bible, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So here's the reality for some of you today. Before you need anything else from God's inspired word, you need the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. And here's the awesome thing of the word of God and its power. That right now, you have never seen the gospel of Jesus Christ as something wise. That's what he's writing here. The, 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 that the word of God was able to lift the fog in Timothy's young life to give him wisdom that led to salvation. So for some of you in here this morning that maybe you came in here only ever seeing one path to take in life. The world's path. And it looked good for a while, but now you're seeing where it's leading you. And it's in Psalm 1, the path that leads to destruction. It's the path that leads to eternal death, not eternal life. But you only saw that one path. You didn't have eyes to see. You didn't have the wisdom to put it together. And now a little bit aged and a little bit longer down that path, you, you, even this morning, this is what God could be doing in your heart, is lifting the fog. And you start to see there's actually two paths in life. 
There is that path of folly that leads to my own destruction. But God in his grace is showing me that there's a path that could lead to my salvation. And you could be seeing it right now. And at the end of that path is eternal life. And it's Christ calling to you, come to me. For forgiveness of sins. For redemption by my blood. For the cancellation of your sin debt. That path is now barely visible to you. And you got to walk it by faith. And believe that at the end of that is eternal life. And you've never maybe until now seen that that's even there. But God in a gift of his grace is allowing it to appear to you through wisdom that could lead to your salvation this morning. And why it's so important that you respond to his call to come to Christ today is because I can't promise you that the fog of the ways of the world won't settle and that path will be gone tomorrow. That you won't, you'll wake up and you won't see it. That the word of God that landed on your heart this morning would be plucked away that seed. But you're hearing it right now and it's landing right now and you're able to just see a glimpse of it. But will you respond by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation this morning? Because he's offering it to you. That any who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be saved. And that there's no other name in heaven and on earth by which men may be saved. But Jesus Christ. And that, that wisdom can lead to your salvation today through faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you call out to him and ask him to show mercy to you, the sinner. And when he does that, then... Then all the rest of the treasure of the scripture and its power is opened up for you to live out. And for you, believer, there's hope in this. That he desires to complete the work that he started in you. But the word has to keep doing a work in you to do a work through you. So, so see it in all of its optimism today, all of the hope in it today. Is there pain in reproof? Yeah, and in correction. But look past it with eyes of faith to believe where God could have you. Through his truthful and useful word, making you abundantly fruitful for his glory. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truthful and useful word today. We've done nothing to deserve it. There was nothing in it that we could improve upon. But in your promise kept that you can take your word and it's it's enduring and it is powerful and it is like a sword that can divide to the innermost part of our soul you're faithful and for that we're thankful so seal through your spirit's work seal these truths to our hearts so that we can be all that you would have us to be in jesus it's in his name we pray amen